The race to 5G is a race. America must win. I do think that the security of our telecom networks is paramount, especially as we emerge into a 5G environment. And do you want the, you know, the Chinese networks with Huawei gear touching your personal data? I know I don't. 5G technology is the future, and the future has arrived. You're listening to the 5 on 5G podcast brought to you by 5G Action Now. Hello and welcome to the 5 on 5G podcast, where we talk about some of the latest developments in the world of 5G technology. I'm really excited for our guest this episode. He was previously general counsel to the FCC and was nominated and confirmed unanimously as FCC commissioner in 2017, and then again in 2019 was nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate to serve a new five-year term. Commissioner Brendan Cart, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And before we get started with, with the 5G talk, I do want to say I love your Twitter game. <laughs> Thanks. It's a lot of fun. You know, sometimes you don't land every single time. So I take a few risks out there and sometimes people like them and, uh, and sometimes they're duds, but that's the way it goes. Yeah, no, it's great. I've got a, I've got a whole row of sort of 5G FCC commentators on my tweet deck and I just, you know, I love your commentary. So I'm going to jump right into it. Um, look, you hear a lot about the importance of mid-band spectrum like the C-band in building out a truly national 5G network, you know, particularly one that covers rural America. Can you explain why that is so important? Yeah, thanks so much. So, you know, at the FCC, we've been working, you know, really since 2017 to turn things around and secure U.S. leadership in 5G. And to be honest, in 2015 and 2016, we were at really serious risk of seeding U.S. leadership in 5G and the millions of jobs, the billions of dollars of investment that that means for our economy to China and other global competitors. One way we've turned that around is on the spectrum front. So to enable 5G, you have to have low band, what we call low band, mid band, and high band spectrum. And the reason all three are key is in order to get those truly fiber-like high speeds, you're going to need a lot of high band or millimeter wave. And to get a lot of the rural areas covered, you need the propagation characteristics of 5G on low band. And the reason why mid band is so key is it combines the features of both of those spectrum bands so that you can get those, you know, high speeds across, you know, relatively large areas. So that's why mid band, in addition to high and low, is so key to not just U.S. global leadership, but getting to our finish line, which is to see 5G in every single community. It's not enough that 5G is already in New York or San Francisco. So mid-band is how we extend that leadership and make sure every community in this country gets a fair shot at 5G. Now, what about other countries? Are they going to be counting on mid-band spectrum for their 5G networks as well? Yeah, you see a little bit of a, of a mix of different approaches. So what's interesting, for instance, about China is that Beijing has bet exclusively, really, on mid-band spectrum. So their 5G builds focus almost only on mid-band. They haven't made available, or at least last time I checked, they haven't made available any high-band or millimeter wave spectrums. That's why 5G in the U.S. is going to be faster than 5G in China. So China is right to, to put mid-band spectrum out there, and we're right to put mid-band spectrum out there as well. But our strategy is to complement that with high and low-band. That's how you really build out a, a robust, deep, 5G network. So I want to move on to the FCC auction plan. That's obviously been big news for the past several months, the different steps that, that we've gone through. Um, the auction plan was agreed to by the satellite companies. 
contains incentives for clearing the, the mid-band spectrum quickly. Why are those incentives important? So C-band, you know, is about 300 megahertz of this prime mid-band spectrum, right? So right in that sweet spot for 5G, that's going to complement our other uh, spectrum bands we have out there. And what we looked at in the record is in order to simply relocate satellite providers using, you know, basically normal relocation mechanisms, we could clear that 300 megahertz by December 5th of 2025, which obviously is a generation from now. Uh, we saw a path, though, to clearing that spectrum faster and on an accelerated basis. But it would require a lot more than just ordinary efforts by satellite providers. They got to build new satellites. They got to launch these satellites. There needs to be you know, relocation uh, to the upper portion of the band. In order to make sure that those investments take place, we relied on an FCC approach of acceleration payments. And what we found was that by every year that we could move faster, faster than 2025, we could realize something in the order of $15 billion uh, in consumer welfare. So speed made a huge difference to the economy. It made a huge difference to the value of the spectrum. Again, a one-year delay in freeing up C-band was reducing the value of that spectrum itself by something like 7 to 11%. So whether you look at it just purely from the economics of going faster, or you look at it from the global geopolitics of making sure we maintain our leadership in 5G, we needed to find a way to incentivize providers to go above and beyond normal relocation and go faster than December 2025. And that's when we came up with this acceleration payment uh, of around $9.7 billion, uh, which as of now, the incumbent satellite providers have agreed to take. And so we are now on track to move much faster than 2025. And that's a real win all the way around. I think the Treasury is going to see a win because people will value the spectrum more now that they get it faster. Uh, there'll be an economic upside to U.S. leadership as our GDP grows from getting 5G built out. So uh, we made a really good decision there to get that spectrum out uh, faster. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, it, it's, it's so fascinating that, you know, clearing the spectrum faster brings more value to the Treasury. I mean, I think that's an important point that, you know, that really shows the value of what the FCC was able to do here. I think that's right. And this is, you know, an important piece of the mid-band play. If you step back, there's been uh, actually really significant action on mid-band generally at this FCC. Some of the, the politics out there wouldn't lead you to, to that conclusion. But, you know, we moved pretty quickly on 2.5, both freeing up some spectrum that had been in inventory and frankly, approving the Sprint T-Mobile transaction has put 2.5 spectrum that was in the commercial marketplace, but really sitting on the sideline because Sprint didn't have the financial position to deploy it. Well, now T-Mobile is already lighting up that 2.5 spectrum. And so we're seeing uh, increased speeds and capacity in 2.5. If you move up the band to 3.5 gigahertz, Commissioner O'Reilly led the work to uh, create some even greater incentives to make sure that band works. And we'll be auctioning that mid-band spectrum later this summer, the C-band, as we just mentioned. We've also gone with the 5.9 gigahertz band with an NPRM looking at potentially freeing some of that up. We opened up 1,200 megahertz of 6 gigahertz for sort of next generation Wi-Fi, which is, from my perspective, a complement to licensed spectrum and part of the whole 5G ecosystem we're trying to develop. And of course, a Legato decision, which is also um, a lower mid-band play. 
Uh, plus looking at some more spectrum in the lower three gigahertz band. So I think our mid-band story is pretty compelling, uh, even though there's some political incentives for people to suggest that uh, this FCC has been slow on mid-band. Uh, really, when you just walk through what we've accomplished in three years, uh, it's a pretty impressive play. And again, it's a complement to our high band and low band approaches. Yeah. Now, I want to move across the world here and talk a little bit about China and 5G. I mean, we talk a lot about the race with China to full development and deployment uh, on 5G. You know, why should we be concerned about China winning the race to full 5G? You know, so China looks back at the transition from 3G to 4G, and there's no question that the U.S. led that transition. And if you look at the economic upside that America realized by being first to 4G, China wants to flip the script and they want to secure that economic dominance in this transition to 5G. And they really view 5G as a uh, economic platform for the next decade and they want to dominate that space. That's why it's so important that the FCC has moved quickly, obviously on spectrum, but also on infrastructure. So, you know, 4G obviously unlocked the entire app economy. I mean, think about your own life 10 years ago when we were shifting 3G to 4G. Think about how you got across town. You had to call a phone number, wait in line, uh, hope a taxi showed up, pay exorbitant rates. I mean, think about all the rides you just didn't even take because uh, it was such a pain. Well, now with 4G, of course, we have Uber, Lyft, uh, options right on our phones. That's going to happen again with 5G. And the largest companies out there right now, you know, Apple, Google, these companies ride on America's world-leading 4G platform. So from that economic perspective, that's why it's so important that we continue our leadership into 5G. And that's why China's working hard to try to uh, make up for the fact that they weren't first to 4G. You know, our, our allies across the world, are they coming around to sort of the threat of, of Chinese telecom companies building out their 5G networks? Or do they still see Huawei and ZTE as, as viable options? I think the tide is really starting to shift against Huawei and ZTE. And the U.S. Uh, you know, was engaged on this issue because we want to make sure that our U.S. networks are secure. So we you know, prohibited, subsidized Huawei gear from going into U.S. networks. We have prohibited China Mobile, one of the largest wireless providers in the world uh, that's ultimately uh, controlled by the, the communist regime in China from connecting to our network. We're now looking at kicking uh, carriers that may ultimately also be controlled by the communist regime out of our network. And in our trade negotiations, we've cracked down on some of the IP theft that gave Huawei an advantage. And so the U.S. was out front early on this, and a lot of people were skeptical about it. But that skepticism is starting to turn. And you're now seeing reports of you know a country here, a country there, increasingly uh, limiting their exposure to Huawei gear and looking for other options. And we think that's uh, really a good thing. And really, I think this COVID-19 pandemic has underscored this movement when people have you know, increasingly lost faith in the trustworthiness of any entity that is ultimately under the thumb of the communist regime. So I think it's a, a good thing that we're seeing right now with people uh, reassessing the scope and nature of Huawei gear. Because again, it's very hard to control that threat from Huawei. So Huawei gear is not something that you take out of a box. And, you know, if you take one out of a box, a, a router is going to operate the same as another one you take out of that box. The way that they operate, they're, they're very bespoke pieces of network. So 
they're individually set up, usually individually programmed. So that's very difficult to, you know, put a regime in place that can uh, verify and check a piece of equipment and let it go out there en masse. Uh, the other thing briefly that we're seeing that's helping to mitigate some of this threat is this shift to software-based networks. So 3G, 4G were very dependent on these expensive, bespoke pieces of hardware that for a lot of reasons, including IP theft, Huawei could offer cheaper versions of than uh, Nokia or Ericsson. But what we're seeing is increasingly the brains of the 5G network is at the software level. And when you compete on software, U.S. companies have a natural advantage. They're very good in that space. And you don't necessarily need the same scope and scale to compete on software as you would need for expensive pieces of hardware. So when you look at everything that we're doing, when you look at the, the growing consensus of the threat and lack of trustworthiness, and you look at the shift towards software-based networks where there's increasingly affordable non-Huawei ZTE options, I think the tide is turning in the right direction. That's, that's great to hear. Now, now you mentioned earlier, you brought up COVID. And one of the things that the FCC has is, is really been leading on is, is telemedicine, which obviously we know the importance of that now. Can you speak a little bit about what the FCC has been doing in that, uh, that area? Yeah, we've been active for a long time at the FCC in one particular area of telehealth, which is supporting the build out of high speed internet connections to brick and mortar healthcare facilities. That's been really important work, and that work is going to continue. In fact, we're adding more support for that effort right now uh, than we've ever had. What I saw when I got out of D.C. and, you know, it first occurred to me on a trip to Mississippi where I was in the Mississippi Delta, seeing how they were having some success in a pilot program treating diabetes. And the idea here is that rather than having people go to a connected brick-and-mortar hospital – we now have the technology to deliver care directly to people in their home, whether it's an app on your smartphone or uh, in the trial I saw in Mississippi Delta, it was a diabetes patients. They were sent home with a Bluetooth connected blood glucose monitor and iPad, and it would give them instant feedback every day about how to uh, maintain their care rather than waiting for a condition to get so bad that someone goes to a connected brick and mortar hospital. So the way I describe that is for people to think about it as the healthcare equivalent of shifting from blockbuster video to Netflix. And so keeping people healthy wherever they're located, I think that's the future of not just telehealth, but healthcare. We're seeing improved patient outcomes and significant savings for the healthcare industry. So as we look at COVID, the HHS, uh, CMS, they did a lot of cutting of red tape. They did a lot of additional support for telehealth. And I think that those gains are ones that we have to keep as we power out of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Now, now, speaking of the future, I kind of want to do a little hypothetical here. Let's let's step into the DeLorean and, and uh, go 10 or 15 years in the future. What might our economy and technological advancements look like when 5G is fully, fully built out? Yeah, so this is the great you know, challenge of, of trying to describe 5G to people is that uh, human nature is very much anchored in the current day. And we sort of think that the next big thing is just going to be a faster version of what we have now. And it's it goes way back. So, you know, Henry Ford supposedly said that if he'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And in fact, we called the first, you know, cars horseless carriages. So we have difficulty sort of seeing what's coming. And again, if you were to think back on your life 10 years ago, you would really not have been able to envision the app economy. Or if you could, you'd be making a lot of money right now and probably not doing this podcast with me. But I think one, 
one interesting feature of 5G to give you a taste of it, I think is going to be virtual reality and augmented reality. You know, this upgrade to 5G is going to truly enable that in a seamless way that we haven't had before. And what does that mean? Well, there's pain points in your daily life today that you may not even recognize as pain points that a VR, AR solution can address. Take grocery shopping. So I hate going to the grocery store, but I have to eat, so I got to go to the grocery store. And even right now, obviously with COVID, it's additional complications with going to the grocery store. And there's some online options today where you can go online and order stuff and have it delivered, but it doesn't replicate that experience of going to the grocery store. So imagine sitting in your home on your couch, putting your you know 5G-enabled AR, VR goggles on, and you're transported to your grocery store, not you know a generic store, but your actual store that you know, you know the aisles, you maybe like me, like to walk it in a particular direction, and you can actually see the products. And with haptics, you can actually pick a box up off the shelf, you can pick a piece of fruit up, see if it's you know the type that you want, throw it in your virtual grocery cart, and then it can be delivered to your home. So I think there's going to be a whole wave of innovations that address pain points in our daily lives today that we can, you know, barely see today, but that 5G is going to create and support the technologies that address it. That's great. So I I really appreciate you have coming on here and talking with us. But before you leave, I, I've got one more question for you. I want you to get back in the DeLorean. I want you to go to maybe say the beginning of April. We had college basketball. Yeah. Where did Georgetown end up? That's a good question. I, you know, Georgetown is is not the the Georgetown basketball team of of the day. When I was growing up, uh, of course, it was you know the first John Thompson, and they were you know seemed like they were always in the Final Four. And I you know grew up a huge fan of Georgetown and was you know gratified and happy when I got to attend Georgetown down the road. But uh, it hasn't quite been the same Georgetown basketball team of the 1980s. Similarly to my football team, the Washington Redskins. You know, your sort of impression of them is, uh, I think, of your football teams or sports teams is kind of governed by where you were when you're eight, nine, and ten. And the Joe Gibbs uh, Redskins are not the same team that they are today either. Yeah, it was. You know, I was watching. Um, did you see the Last Dance? No, I don't think I have. Okay, it's great. It's the Michael Jordan documentary. Oh yeah. Yeah. a lot on you know the battles with with Ewing's um, Georgetown teams, and then obviously when he was with the Knicks, it was one of the best things I've I've seen in years. Yep. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Um, This was great. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.